When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. You're listening to the Game Makers Podcast. I'm Charles Adam Foster Simard from Ubisoft. Since Game Makers launched, we've been taking you behind the scenes to see how Ubisoft teams around the world make our games, focusing specifically on different audio topics like music, sound effects, and foley. For this episode, we'll be exploring a different aspect of game design, accessibility. Video games are for everyone but many players face steep barriers to playing certain games. Sometimes the controls aren't adapted to their motor skills, or they can't differentiate between enemy and friendly colors. A deaf person might not be able to hear auditory cues, while a player with visual disabilities might have difficulty seeing certain warnings if they're not bold or high contrast enough, or if they aren't accompanied by clear sounds or rumbles. Some video games cram a lot of information on the screen at the same time, making it overwhelming for players with cognitive disabilities to see everything that's going on. From a lack of subtitles to overly complicated controls, there are countless examples of ways in which video games inadvertently set up barriers, but also countless ways to refine and improve those features to ensure a positive gaming experience for everyone. To learn more about what video game developers can do to make their games more accessible, I spoke with Cherry Thompson, who recently joined Ubisoft Montreal as an accessibility project manager. Cherry shared some great insights into this fascinating topic. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Hi, Cherry. Hi, sorry, that was when I took the time to take a drink of water. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> and uh, where are you in the world? I'm actually in Vancouver. I was supposed to move to Montreal in March, but we know what happened in March, so <laughs> I'm still in Vancouver. <laughs> and I'll also welcome you to Ubisoft because you joined uh, very recently, I believe. Yeah, I was supposed to start um, at the very beginning of April and it had to be delayed due to work from home, um, but we managed to get it going at the end. So can you tell us, Cherry, how did you get started in the video game industry? Yeah, so I had a really unusual path into games. Um, I really like talking about Atypical Roads In because I think a lot of people get the idea that you have to go to school for game development in order to be a game developer. Um, But I know a lot of people that did take a different road in. For me, I had a previous career that was about um, 12 years in uh, spanning film production, photography, and fine art. Um, They're kind of two simultaneous careers. And uh, I loved that career. It was kind of, it was my whole identity in. Um, I was, I really enjoyed it. Uh, But I've always been a gamer as well. I've always played games ever since I can remember my dad worked in software development. So um, he got me into games really, really young. And I started to find games difficult to play. Um, and then as I always had disabilities, but they were undiagnosed at the time. And, and there was kind of the first, actually the first warning signs that I did have disabilities was my difficulty playing games. Then at 31, I had a very sudden and unexpected stroke. Um, it was the first of a couple and 
shortly after that stroke, during my rehabilitation, I found it really difficult to play games because it affected my vestibular system and memory and cognitive function. Um, and it was just really difficult to play the kind of games that I loved, which was largely action adventure games. Um, and so I had to find new games to play and new ways of playing. Uh, and luckily I was already kind of peripherally involved with the games accessibility scene because um, I'd already started to struggle with my hands and things like that in the years previous. So I knew of games accessibility and I knew what it was. I knew how to mod my own controller and things like that. Uh, but suddenly when I couldn't play at all, it became really clear to me how so many games were not being made with people like me in mind. Um, and as I had to leave my previous career, because it's a very physical job in the film industry, um, and even fine art is just very, very physical to make art. So I couldn't do that anymore. Um, and during my rehabilitation and as my disabilities progressed, I started to get really into accessibility. I learned as much as I could about it. Um, every guideline out there, I went to, I started going to conferences um, and speaking at conferences and um, on my experience and on other players' experience and what it means for game development. I became a subject matter expert. This is a really long story, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I became a subject matter expert where I shared my experiences with developers and explained the barriers that I faced playing games, um, which actually gave me a really good insight into um, what was needed, what needed to happen within games development. So another quick side story, I had lots of friends that worked in games. I live in Vancouver, so the games industry is pretty big here. Um, I had people that worked in both film and games that were friends of mine, um, sound designers, uh, production, and um, all sorts of roles. Uh, I had a friend who's a programmer and they taught me a lot too. And then I started to progress from subject matter expert as my expertise evolved and as I learned more of the broader goal of accessibility and learned the technical aspects of accessibility. And then I became a specialist where I learned game design on the job um, and from uh, literature and uh, a lot of really generous people in games who have mentored me and, and taught me kind of everything I know. But um, yeah, so now, my job involves, um, well, my official title is project manager. What I actually do is uh, I work as kind of a designer and uh, I collaborate on solutions with other developers across um, many different teams. And so my, my role really very much spans the design spectrum of game development um, with a little bit of production to help guide things. So you didn't study video game production or game design. Was it tough to like switch around from from the previous career that you had into that? Like, what was some of the most challenging things about that, or or was it kind of a natural progression for you? Yeah, so it's very natural for me just because I'm a really good self learner. Um, my path into the into film and fine art was all self taught as well. I actually haven't been to university and I'm uh, 38 now. So, <laughs> um, and I think that um, I unfortunately wasn't in a position to go to university. I came from a background that meant we couldn't afford for me to go to university. And so for me, I've always kind of really enjoyed self-learning and it's something that comes natural to me because it's something I had to do out of necessity in order to have any kind of career. Um, and that really applied really well to games development because I think school is very valuable. If you have the opportunity to go to school and you're of an age where that is valuable to you, definitely do it. I don't want to discourage people not going to school. Um, if it's there, definitely take advantage because it will give you, it will teach you things that I don't know. Um, but at the same time, if you are dedicated enough, you can learn yourself. It just takes a lot of effort. And I think that's the thing is like self-directed learning. The difficult part of it is being dedicated enough to want to really take in as much knowledge on your own time as you can. Um, and also knowing how to learn from other people without kind of taking advantage of them, um, kind of when they offer mentorship or when they guide you through things. And I think I thrive off it. Like I really love learning on the job and I love, um, learning as I go. And I feel like 
I adapt really well, um, which is probably part of being a disabled person. Honestly, we, our entire life is adaptation. That's how we can exist in the world. So right. Always finding, always finding ways to, uh, uh, like workarounds, right. When, when things are adapted. Yeah. Or just even like, I had to teach myself how to use my wheelchair because I don't have the right diagnosis to mean Mm. that I have access to that kind of rehabilitation because of the way society is set up. Um, mostly people that get access to wheelchair lessons or rehab facilities have spinal cord injuries and are sudden disabilities. But for me, having a progressive rare genetic disorder means that I didn't have access to that. And so um, I had to learn from YouTube and find friends on the internet that could teach me how to do wheelies so I could get up steps and things like this. So yeah, we it, it's just built into, into society that we have to kind of learn to adapt. Uh, so you, you mentioned your accessibility project manager. What does that look like? Like, what, what is it that you do in the day to day? What are the kinds of, of responsibilities and, and tasks that you have? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, I could take an hour just to talk about this. Um, probably more. <laughs> um, I do a lot. So I do a lot of different things. My job involves so many different ways of working on accessibility and it really depends on where production is in the timeline of the production so really early on we start with um meeting with creative um working on like kind of the core concepts of the design to make sure we're not unintentionally introducing any barriers in core design concepts making sure it's a part like a core pillar of the creative direction um but then later on, it becomes more analysis and feedback. So it really depends where, I mean, kind of as we start getting into kind of pre-alpha, we'll start looking at prototypes and uh, like I'll do a review on animation um, for motion sickness and things like this and make sure that anything that can be done is done um, as long as like it works within the creative brief. Because I think that's important to understand is that accessibility isn't something that we force or that we want to change the creative direction just because of accessibility. We want to work in harmony with that and we want to achieve the goals of creative at the same time as making sure we don't accidentally exclude people. Um, Because making video games is about creating barriers. Um, That's what makes a video game a video game. It makes it challenging. It makes it fun. It makes it interactive. It's just about making sure we understand our player experiences. So that's where my role is. I don't know if I'm explaining this well because it's very complex. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, later in later in developers where I think it gets most interesting for for some people is that I can work with prototypes or builds and I work um in harmony with design teams. So I'll take a look at their build or their prototype and I'll pick up issues that they can't necessarily see themselves because they don't have that training or that background yet. Mm-hmm. And that actually builds the, builds their experience for the future. They'll be able to see that themselves in the future. So um, I'll spot issues with colorblindness or motion sickness or motor disabilities. Like if there's an issue in the core systems design of the controls or even the progression systems. Um, and so then what happens after that is once I've uh, delivered a report or something like that on on the features that are causing or may cause barriers, then I'll sit down with designers and we'll collaborate on figuring out solutions. I'll guide them through brainstorming um, and I'll give them feedback on their work in progress as they're going. Um, I do a lot of documentation, which is really important as a game designer. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, like, that's the stuff that people hate. Like they hate documentation. <laughs> but for me, it's so important and valuable that even though I really don't like doing it, like doing it is definitely a chore. The payoff is so big that it's the documentation is a big part of it. <laughs> why why is the payoff so big? Is it because you're you're kind of helping t- like teams teams in the future or other teams that you're yeah. not necessarily uh working with at the moment? Yeah, so it's about the future, but it's also about the currents. We need something that that developers can and designers can read and have as a reference. So for programmers for example, they have um, all sorts of books on their shelves and they have the internet when it like it's this myth that programmers know how to just code and it just comes out of their brain um, which does happen but there's often times where they'll get to a point and they'll be like oh I can't quite remember how to do this one thing so they'll look it up and that's like totally a natural part of programming and that's the same for design like I think um, it's kind of 
it's not the best design practice to think that you've got it and you don't ever need to reference um, guides or, or benchmarks. And I think at Ubisoft especially, so many of our designers um, really thrive when they have those benchmarks there and they can really just get on and do their job and then come back and check in. Um, and so that's like a big part of the documentation. So it's interesting because you, so uh, I mean, uh, Ubisoft, of course, there's several different studios and we're always working on a bunch of different games at the same time with that, that, as you mentioned, are in different stages. Like you mentioned pre-alpha, which is quite early on in the development. And then later on, you'll have um, you'll have more of a prototype or, or more of a version of the game, like a build that you can actually you can actually test and play on. And most people work on one game or one brand at a time, right? But you're actually working mm -hmm. on several projects at the same time because you're, you're more part of a kind of transversal, transversal team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Is it hard to always be switching around between different projects like Uh, you know, for, that are also in different stages of development? Like, is it hard to kind of turn turn your brain around and, and be working on games that are potentially completely different? Um, it can be difficult, but so I was a freelancer before I worked at Ubisoft. And so I'm kind of used to it in a way because it's what I was already doing. Um, but it it's definitely, I wouldn't say it's easy. It's definitely an acquired skill and it's part of the job that kind of you need this skill But it's one of those skills that you can build as you go and you kind of get used to in a way. Um, but it does get really tiring. I will be honest, <laughs> like, it gets really exhausting to be kind of hyper-focused on, um, like yesterday, for example, I was deep in analysis, like full on. And analysis is the most exhausting thing because you're constantly just picking apart everything and you have to access every part of your skill set and memory and um, all of your knowledge as you go and you're constantly flipping back and forth between settings and gameplay and um, kind of picking apart every part of the UI. And once you're done that, you kind of come out with that. You're like, oh my gosh, where did those like five hours go? And you're just exhausted and you're like, oh no, I have a meeting now. And now I have to talk about something totally different. It's <laughs> it is really hard, but um, you learn yeah. tools like going to make tea and, you know, just stroking your cat when you're working from home, which is like the best thing about working from home is having a cat to decompress. E easy access to the, to <laughs> yeah, the animals. Exactly. They're very helpful. <laughs> So you mentioned also, I mean, I want to get into the features and, and what, what accessibility really looks like in video games in a minute. But um, first of all, because you mentioned working on different games um, so and, and, and kind of uh, let's say you have access to a prototype for a game. Do you do you do like a single pass, let's say, for features for um, for blind players or, or for players, you know, that's more visual? Do you do a pass for cognitive stuff? Do you do, you do a pass for, for audio stuff? Or like do you when you do uh, a, a study or, or when you look at a prototype or, or look at a game, you're looking for all those accessibility features at the same time? Like how do you how mm -hmm. do you kind of manage that? Because there's so much that goes under accessibility. Yeah. So for me, I do it all at once. That's just how my brain works, okay. <laughs> um, but it's not how everyone's brain works. And that's totally fair. Um, it's kind of, so full disclosure is I'm autistic and that's one of my disabilities. Um, and for me, that's one of the kind of, I don't like to think of as autism as an advantage because I, I really don't necessarily like that narrative, but I think it's one of my, um, my skills is that I can really hyper-focus on something and really kind of as long as I'm in the right environment, can really just access all that knowledge at once, which is really helpful. Um, but it's not how everyone mm. works and um, that's totally valid. And I don't think everyone should have to work that way. So for me, I'm always analyzing everything at the same time, but kind of in a way that, so one anal analysis session, I'll, I'll be looking at a particular part of the game. So for me, I break it down by um, discipline and game area, because I think that's most useful for how we can affect change in production and how we can achieve the best things in design is understanding whose responsibility it is to oversee that feature or design that feature. And so it's more like I'll look at settings and then I'll look at gameplay, I'll look at um, the UI, I'll look at audio and kind of break it down as I go that way. Um, and I kind of have like this mental list of uh, things that barriers that players face Um, but I real I fully realize that's not how everyone is able to work. Um, 
like a lot of people will have a big checklist of items to go through and um, guidelines. And that's one approach and it's totally a valid approach. I tried to break away from guidelines because I think guidelines can feel restrictive and prescriptive to designers, which doesn't necessarily lead to the best work or the best um, out, innovative outcomes. And I think we really push it forward when we can break away. But guidelines are a really good starting point for people that have less experience and less expertise in accessibility, where they can sit and look at different areas of accessibility and really get to grips with that. Um, so I do know people that work that way. And I think it's, I think it's definitely a way that works for other people, but we're all different, right? I mean, even amongst designers, if you've got a team of gameplay designers, they all work very differently to each other. And that's kind of the beauty of game development and how we can even make games. Cause I just don't think I do. making a game is kind of miraculous when you break it all down. <laughs> I know when I think about it, sometimes I, I can't even, I can't even compute yeah. like how much work and how many things can break and not Our work. Our brains aren't made for that kind of thinking. It's just not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Um, okay, so let's let's dig in because you you started mentioning UI and and you started mentioning uh, settings and a bunch of stuff. So so can you explain kind of broadly and then maybe give some specific examples? Like what do we talk about when we're talking about accessibility features in video games? Yeah, so for me, um, I kind of like to break it down as I don't like to think of it as accessibility features and features. For me, all features impact accessibility. And I think that's really important for the industry to understand moving forwards is sometimes there is a feature that needs to be made specifically for accessibility. But a lot of the time, if we're assessing accessibility or if we understand accessibility when we're designing any feature, we don't need to then create an accessibility feature. Um, we can just make our features more accessible. And so that is how I like to approach that. And the reason for that is what accessibility really is when it comes down to it is addressing what we call unintentional barriers. So unintentional barriers are the ones that we um, design by mistake just because we're not aware of that player experience or we're not aware of how our design can um, cause a barrier for someone. And that is the majority of barriers that players face. Um, when we actually think about it and we break it down, there's very few barriers in a game that we've designed as part of the gameplay or as part of the way a player interacts that is deliberate. And we can find ways around, we can even find ways around those ones. And that's where accessibility features come in. So how we get around that could be a few approaches. Um, most accessible isn't necessarily separate features, like I say, but it's about looking at our control systems, our progression systems, UI, existing audio, level design, um, narrative, pretty much anything that goes into making a games, into making a game, we have to think about accessibility because um, we could be throwing up barriers and we don't even realize it. So I'll give a quick concrete example, um, which is a really early example. One of the very first things to make the press as being an accessibility feature is colorblind features. Um, now we can create colorblind features where players can change settings to affect changes in the UI, for example, or even in the game world, which is um, important, but a better approach, or like a, I'd say maybe not better, but like a, a complementary approach is making sure that we don't need that feature to begin with as much as we can. So when we're designing at the at very early stages, we're designing our UI or, um, and UI isn't just menus, it's kind of our HUD, it's in-game interaction points, it's icons, it's um, everything that a player sees basically that isn't the game world or the character. And, uh, it's really important to understand that if we're indicating something with color, that will want, it doesn't matter what color it is, it will always be a barrier with someone, for someone with color blindness. Vision, any disability with vision can affect color perception. So um, there are many visual disabilities that also have color perception difficulties. And so it can be really important. And that happens actually with age. I'm just going to throw that in there that we lose our color vision as we age, things become not as vibrant to us and it can happen on a particular spectrum. And so it goes beyond that. And the way we do that is we make sure that we have kind of redundancies or, or more avenues of information for a player. So say we've got two enemies and they're indicated by color 
instead of just being a color symbol, like a color bar or a uh, blob above their head that's just one color, we also make it an icon. So it is two different icons for, say, enemy and friendly. And that way, um, even if a player can't necessarily uh, tell the different colors apart, then they can actually just at a glance see that. And that actually then, this is how accessibility gets so huge, then actually even uh, also benefits both visual disabilities and cognitive disabilities. Um, some cognitive disabilities manifest in difficulties with processing information. So that's ADHD, autism, um, memory deficits, brain fog, things like this. Um, and so if we have those multiple systems of feedback, then that allows players to identify those things without too much cognitive processing or cognitive load. And then for visual disabilities, um, it's just a clarity situation and it gives kind of, it, it's all about like speed, right? And processing and, and things like that. So that's, I think that's the best example I can give. But you're, I think that's really interesting, right? Is every, every time you actually bring in these like new design ideas that are maybe a little bit, maybe require a little bit more work to put in, because instead of just being, let's say a color, you're also having like an additional element, like a designed icon, or maybe mm -hmm. even like a sound element or something like that. Like you're, you're potentially t helping out a bunch of different other players. And also people that we wouldn't traditionally consider as disabled will benefit from that. And there's, that's complex history over whether someone identifies as disabled or not, but, um, it, it's really beneficial for everyone and can just improve our design and make us better designers. Yeah, I was going to say, like, some, in some circumstances, maybe uh, you would choose not to play without sound, for example, even though you're not deaf, just because, let's say, you're in the plane and you you're playing on your Switch and you forgot your headphones. Or There's so many examples of, of um, people who necess wouldn't necessarily uh, identify as having a disability, but where they need different features or they would be helped by different settings uh, to continue having a positive playing experience. Yeah. I like to start accessibility by looking at disability and looking at disabled players, because I think one of the core concepts of getting accessibility most right is understanding that if, that it's a spectrum. And if mm. we, if we design with, um, the hardest barriers in mind, then right. we actually catch a lot of people within that. So say we think about people that can only press a certain number of buttons or that only have a certain amount of strength. That seems like a pretty profound disability to a lot of able-bodied people. Um, and you think, um, and a lot of people have kind of very mis strong misconceptions on what that means for playing games. But if we design to include those players um, first and foremost and center those people in the way we we approach our design that's when we catch everyone else i think i think thinking about people that have situational disabilities first is where we will miss um people that can really most benefit but it definitely is is kind of like a it's a bonus benefit right right it's like by hitting the mo by going to the most uh, kind of quote unquote extreme version you're you're hitting the rest of the mm -hmm. spectrum potentially yeah exactly can you share some more um, before we talk a little bit about what's going on at Ubisoft with accessibility? Can you can you give us some more examples of features? But let's see. Some other good examples would be looking at control systems. So um, control systems can really impact uh, so many different types of disabilities. But obviously, the first disability that comes to mind is motor disabilities. So that's um, disabilities with strength, coordination, range of movement, um, or many other different ways, tremors, things like this. Um, and I love digging into control systems because it's really complex and technical and it's difficult. It's such a difficult problem to solve because control systems can really impact so much of a game. Like we don't even realize just how much of our game is impacted by control systems sometimes. Like that's everything from UI has its own mapping to um, every single different type of interaction in the world has a different control mapping um and that gets more complex the more complex a game is so a game like assassin's creed for example it's it's incredibly complex and so that's one of those really good examples that if you approach that late uh, in a late stage of development it could be really difficult to retrofit and really difficult to problem solve from the back backwards onwards backwards 
I don't know how to say that, but you know, going backwards, but it's possible. Um, it's just more complex. So I've worked on a couple projects now before Ubisoft where we've worked on control systems, um, to, uh, on games that were already in progress and already in the late stage of development. And what needs to happen is it's not just remapping. So the like early implementations of remapping have really just been button swapping. So what that really amounts to is say, look at a controller and you can swap what the trigger button does with the shoulder button and it just globally swaps everything. That's difficult because we have players that can't necessarily reach every button on a controller. Some buttons are harder to press than others. And for some people, some button presses can even injure them, um, whether that's due to repetitive strain injury, like tendonitis or carpal tunnel, or even like my disabilities, um, my soft tissues are extremely fragile. So uh, that can cause me injuries. Some buttons can. Um, and so those are the buttons we want to avoid usually. And there are a couple of common ones. It's usually the stick presses and the trigger buttons are the most problematic, but it can be different for everyone. Um, and it really depends on the frequency of use. So for me, face buttons are usually fine, but if a game only uses face buttons and it's really frantic and I end up pressing them really hard and really fast and really often that can injure me. So it really, it gets so complex. So what we need to look at in addition to control remapping is simplifying the control system as much as we can. So we can do that with creating contextual controls. So for example, if there's parkour in a game, then a player can simply push their character into that um, obstacle and the player will automatically vault it or climb it or whatever. So they don't need to press that button. Or another really common one that we've started to see is auto-targeting. Um, I don't want to get anything wrong, but we saw that in, in quite a few games in the last few years where kind of once you get, it's usually a setting you could turn on and off because um, it's an extra level of challenge that some players enjoy and, and control, which is great. Um, but for players that need or don't want to press that button or can't press that button, um, when you get close to an enemy, you'll automatically target it. So you'll hit the right enemies and things like this. Um, and usually that happens in melee games, uh, games with a lot of melee. So um, like Souls-likes and things like that. I believe uh, like racing games have like automatically follow the road yeah. features. Yeah. So um, Mario Kart is a really good example of that is it's mm. got um, auto... Oh gosh, I really don't want to get it wrong, but I think it's like auto braking and then auto steering as well, or where it kind of like you can't go off the road. Um, there's a few different features in Mario Kart, which are really great. Yeah, I definitely turned that one on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the bowling lane um, bumpers. <laughs> the, the great thing about these features is that they're not, a lot of people will see these features as, oh, are we giving people an advantage by allowing them to turn that on? And that is one of the myths that we face. And I really like to break that down because if it's available to everyone and it really is that much of an advantage, then everyone will use it. And maybe that actually just makes our game more fun and a better experience for all players. But what we actually find is that players like that control. They like to push their limits. They like to challenge themselves. And what challenge is, is different for every single person. So we think about difficulty features, which is another feature I could talk for hours about. Um, and we think about difficulty as traditionally like easy, normal, and hard, but what is normal? Like there is no normal. Um, it's kind of a myth that we've, we've told ourselves and all across society. And so what's easy for one player is different for another. Um, and we find that players really like to push themselves and challenge themselves. So if steering is a challenge, then being able to um, have some assist with that will reduce that challenge. And that means that they can focus on the actual challenge of um, accelerating and braking and drifting and, you know, all of the other awesome ways that we interact with racing games. And if that is not a challenge for a, pl for a player, if that isn't challenging, then they won't use that because it's not actually fun if the game isn't challenging for a lot of people. Um, and I think some players find it harder to win if they have those features turned on. For some players, it will be easier to win. For other players, it'll be harder because they feel like they don't have the control to like take shortcuts or do certain drifts or things like that. So um, I that's a myth that's really fun to break down, but I could, I've had hour long meetings about that, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't I don't want to oversimplify, but it, it, I mean, I like what you're saying, because it's also about giving players lots of options, like the more of these settings that you introduce, the more people can really um, tailor and customize the experience so that they can have the most fun, right? Yeah, yeah. So I tried to avoid as many settings as we can, just because by introducing more and more settings, we're actually introducing barriers in how yeah, okay. accessible those settings are, right? Because the more settings we have, the more of a cognitive load it is, the more of like a motor load it is to have to go through all those settings and set your game up or change them on the fly. But so, so often we can do that without settings. And if we can, that's amazing. Um, and that's kind of what I'm talking about with like the control systems or with colorblind systems but then when we do need to do settings and we do need to implement those features it's amazing it's amazing and powerful tool for players to be able to customize their experience and that kind of is what levels the playing field for people very much so i i really want to talk about subtitles i kind of want to backtrack a little bit mm. um, because i think for a lot of people it's like one of the most obvious or, or most kind of in your face feature and and um, I know that there's been a lot of articles online that I've read about about subtitles in video games. Can you speak a little bit about how how that works and, and the role of subtitles and the best practices there? Yeah, so subtitles is an exciting um, feature to look at because it's kind of really snowballed and and blossomed in the last few years. So we started with subtitles not even being in games, which is shocking when you think about the fact that that happened, but that is what happens with accessibility is, and that's what I mean by an unintentional barrier is it just wasn't brought up or, or, or thought about. And so when players started um, talking about how they were being excluded, the industry kind of was like, oh, we really don't want to do that. So we really shouldn't. Um, and then accessible um, subtitles just became a standard thing in that pretty much most games have subtitles. Um, but then once you start getting that feature in games, you start to then get requests for improving that feature because uh, we'll never get it right straight off the bat. It's really difficult to do that, especially if that's not your experience um, and you're not facing that barrier yourself. And so we started to see requests for bigger sizes because as ironically as displays got bigger and higher density we got smaller and smaller subtitles in ui um there's so many reasons for that and i could talk about that for an hour from a production standpoint there's just many reasons that happen um but so then we ended up with subtitles that were too small and then once we kind of uh, hit that point um assassin's creed Origins won an award for their subtitles because of largely because of the size, but also because um, there were features like different opacity of backgrounds, which helps maintain visibility of subtitles even in bright areas of games and or busy, busy world design. Um, and then we start to see people requesting other features like speaker names, so that you know who is speaking if you um, are playing with no sound at all, or um, if you are deaf. And so uh, I like to always remind people that all disability is a spectrum, that uh, it's not like one or it's not either or kind of, it doesn't matter what the disability is. There's an entire spectrum of people, whether that's entirely deaf or whether they are deaf in one ear or whether they have some hearing loss. Um, and so there are so many different things that need to happen, but we're still getting there. I don't want to say we've got there with subtitles because we definitely haven't. It's a difficult problem in production because developers have to reinvent the wheel a lot of the time is on every production. We don't have engines that have just an ability to add really good subtitles. Um, I think we'll get there, but the problem with that is that then everyone has to remember not to make the same mistakes. Um, and also it can be just difficult to do, like subtitling is really difficult. Like timing is a really difficult aspect that we're trying to address now in the industry is how to make sure your subtitles have good timing and that they don't disappear from the screen too soon or they have proper line breaks. So what we mean by that is when you get a sentence, the breaks of where it moves to the next subtitle is natural and works with the cadence of the conversation that usually relates to punctuation but it can also just be about how the voice actor is um kind of working through the cadence of the line so but that's a really complex problem but 
from a technical perspective, I could talk about that. <laughs> but um <laughs> no, but I think it's fascinating because it's like, oh, one feature you'd think like, oh, yeah, sure. Just put subtitles. Right. But right. then actually when you start unpacking it, there's like so many different things. So you kind of understand why there's a progression there of like, you know, every step is like, OK, well, putting one put just putting subtitles and making sure that the the font is really legible and that they're the, the, the text size is big and then having a background, having speaker names, timing them correctly, having them on by default or all these kinds of or making sure that they're there for also for cutscenes or cinematics all these kinds of things yeah exactly and it's, it's just it is very complex and then also of course you've got your main character subtitles you've got your npc subtitles and then in really complex adventure and open world games we've got hundreds or maybe thousands of characters out in the world or um ai npcs that are talking amongst themselves and having and having discussions and so you need to subtitle that right. and how do you do that when there's also a main character talking and how do you display that and then there's closed captions so we have to make sure we're indicating sound for players so when there's an explosion or an animal sound that they need to know about which you've started to see in far cry and we'll start to see in more games moving forward and i think that's very early days and we have a lot of improvements to make there but i think we'll get there so can you speak to what uh, we're doing at Ubisoft right now? What what are we doing at Ubisoft in terms of accessibility? Kind of what are, uh, I mean, it's a big topic, I'm sure, but like what are our targets and guidelines at the moment? What's our philosophy in terms of the this topic? It's obviously a lot of it's under NDA, so I can't talk about specifics about what we're specifically doing on, on particular game projects, but overall, what Ubisoft is really trying to do is we're trying to make accessibility part of our DNA. So what that really means is that we try to make it part of the entire user experience. That's everything from websites, storefronts, onwards down to or up to our games and laterally to our games. I don't know. <laughs> they all exist. They all coexist together. And that's the whole part of the point is that um, to a player, um, it's really no good if one aspect of our experience is accessible and other aspects aren't um, in the end. And so that's our end goal. It's not necessarily easy to do that instantly. Um, there have been people working on, on accessibility at Ubisoft for a few years now, but it really goes across all disciplines. And I always like to stress that to developers is that every discipline should be thinking about accessibility. It's everyone's responsibility. Um, but experts like me are here to support you because not everyone knows how to achieve accessibility. Like there's so many people that care about it and want to do it, but one of the biggest barriers in production is knowing how to do it. Um, and people are afraid of making mistakes, but that's what we're here for. Um, and you know what, we still might make some mistakes, but mistakes are sometimes how we learn. So that's really where Ubisoft is at a high level. Uh, what it means day to day is that, um, the few of us where it is our sole responsibility uh, have our kind of, we're involved with a lot of different things from PR to marketing to um, website development to games. I largely personally work on games um, because that's where my skill set is. Uh, but, but it really is happening across the board. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because that's also something I, I wanted to talk about because I know, for example, the the most recent example that I can think of is that the Assassin's Creed Valhalla trailer came out a few weeks ago and it came out with a an audio described trailer. Mm -hmm. And I know that when we when we discussed before, you, you 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 were you were suggesting that maybe some people would wonder, like, what's the what's the advantage of having an audio described trailer um, to help to help, of course, uh, you know, a blind a blind audience. If if the game itself it doesn't necessarily have all the features um, to make sure that it's accessible to blind players, so can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think that's a really common um, question, and I think it's an important one because we all need to be held accountable, and I think it's a question that it's really important to answer. So I I totally can see that that it can be very frustrating where one aspect. Uh, of our system is accessible. So we have audio described trailers now, or say our website um, will become more accessible before, maybe before our games do, um, we don't know. The thing is with that is that games is a really complex system of many different people trying to achieve many different things as simultaneously as possible, but it's not 
that's not necessarily how production works. And so it can be really difficult to get everything aligned to happen at once. And we really have to start somewhere. I don't think we should put off doing one thing just because another thing hasn't happened yet. Um, so for example, it, it's going to be very complex and a long road for us to make a fully blind accessible game, and, but we're working on it and we're working really hard at it, but it isn't, especially in existing games and existing, um, uh, kind of systems, it can be a really complex set of features to implement. So in the meantime, if we can get our marketing accessible, which is a, maybe a less complex situation, it's a little bit easier to achieve, then we absolutely should. And I think it's important to involve all aspects of the community in every part of games. And because games is a big community, it's a very social hobby. It's a very social um, part of our lives. And there's just something to be said to be able to watch a giant trailer for a big game coming out and everyone be able to watch it and everyone be able to know what's happening in that trailer and get just as excited and get those same goosebumps and those same um, tingles. If we can even show the impact that has on our community, how exciting and mo moving that is for blind players to be included in that, it really helps us make our entire um, industry more inclusive because we have a situation in the games industry where it's not just our games that need to be more inclusive. It's not just our marketing. It's our entire industry. It's our workforce. It's, um, it's everything. And I really don't know if we can achieve that until we start opening those doors. And sometimes you just have mm. to do that in, in one particular way. And maybe if we can make it more accessible in one way we can really open people's minds and break down the stigma and the biases that we have as a society as as to who should have access to what what are some of the the best practices right now in the industry in, in terms of accessibility according to you that's a really good question so um i really love there's a a a tweet from a couple of years ago from John Knowles from Turn 10 about how accessibility is a race and we're all going to win it because it doesn't matter who gets there first. We all learn from each other. And um, I'm paraphrasing and adding on to his tweet, but that's essentially what he was getting at is that it's all game development is like that. All game designers like that. It's we'd be not telling the truth if we didn't learn from other developments and we didn't learn what players need or enjoy or want from games outside of our particular focus. Even if we're making an adventure game, then we learn from a first-person shooter or we learn from even racing games as to what people, what's a good way for people to interact and what's fun. And it influences everything we do. And so that's the same for accessibility. Accessibility is just another aspect of game design in the same way. So I really love talking about this. So there's a few different approaches and but this is only what we can see from the outside. And I always like to remind people of that, that what we can talk about can sometimes be very limited and what is public can be limited. So there's always more stuff going on behind the scenes we don't know about. But the amazing things that are public at the moment is, um, so Microsoft X, um, Xbox has a set of guidelines, which uh, was built uh, with the accessibility community and is a really good kind of starting point for um, games developers to get an idea of where they can go with accessibility. That helps everyone from AAA to indie because it's available to everyone, whether you work on an Xbox game or not. And that's the amazing thing about that. So is the use of a, I don't want to cut you mm. off, but is the use of guidelines like that, like kind of um, useful in the sense that it's creating almost like a set minimum, like a it's just keeping... You know, it's helping everyone keep that in mind and, and have kind of at least like a minimum standard in terms of accessibility features. It can do. That's one way to use guidelines. Definitely. Um, that's one of the way we use guidelines at Ubisoft is here's the core things that we want to at least achieve. And then we'll build on that and go from there and, and make sure that we're going beyond that. And so it really is a starting right. point. Um, but it's also really helpful for developers that don't necessarily have ac access to an expert or um, are just beginning their journey with accessibility or for indie developers that it's not necessarily in their budget to pay an expert. Um, and so it's really helpful for beginning understanding because I like to say that you can Google a solution, but biased Google searches get you biased results. So what I mean by that is we've seen historically someone will search for colorblind filters or um, 
solution to dyslexia. Um, and what they get for that is they'll get colorblind simulators, which have been put into games um, and obviously does not help people with colorblindness. Um, or dyslexia-friendly fonts are one of those things that help a very small number of people. But dyslexia is kind of an umbrella category that is many different reading disabilities within that umbrella and it's not the same for everyone and for some people dyslexia friendly fonts actually make it worse or don't help at all um, and so mm. there are better better approaches to how we approach that design problem and um, which is really what it is and if we approach it from that perspective that's kind of a better way of approaching it is the problem isn't with the person's disability, it's with our design. So, right. and that's breaking down that stigma because that's how we think about it. And that's how we've been taught to think about it in society, but it's really rooted in bias and kind of ableism, if I'm going to be frank, um, to yeah. think that we need to fix people when really it's our designs that need improving. Um, so yeah, guidelines are a really good starting point and really good if you don't have access to an expert. Uh, I do like to kind of push people to go beyond guidelines because I think we can really innovate and do so much more, which actually brings me to Sony's approach. Um, so Sony Studios, um, all their proprietary studios have different approaches and individual approaches to accessibility, but coordinated centrally. So um, the studio will be working on accessibility and then they coordinate with their um, user research department and things to make sure that everyone's kind of sort of on the same page as much, much as possible. And then they can share once um, the development finishes. Um, so Spider-Man had some amazing features or even like core parts of uh, the way the game was designed was accessible, but it also had some difficulties because we can't get everything at once. We just, no game is perfect. It's just the nature of making anything creative. Nothing's ever finished. Um, nothing ever achieves everything we ever set out to do. And accessibility is just a, a natural part of that too. And so then you see improvements on that dreams, um, full disclosure, I worked on some unannounced projects at Sony and then the last of us two recently news broke about, um, some of their upcoming accessibility and that's really exciting. And that's a, a slightly different approach to guidelines. So I'm sure, I don't know, but I'm sure guidelines informed some of the approach, but then the designers sat down and went beyond that. And there's some great articles out there on the last of us two, if people look that up, um, on how the designers approached accessibility as a core part of their design pillars. And that's uh, the approach I like to take and that I'm trying to um, expand on at Ubisoft and something that I'm really passionate about. Then we also have EA Sports who have a really long history with a wonderful um, person at EA called Karen Stevens, who has done some incredible work over the years and is really one of our pioneers in the industry and the accessibility community and we all know each other we all like even though we work at technically work at competitors we're all friends we all like share knowledge like it's we have a conference called the games accessibility conference and we all meet up and it's really just this wonderful community you get you see that in audio you see that in gameplay design you see it um, in production like you have communities outside of your company and that's really the same for accessibility. And so Karen really paved the way in a lot of how accessibility is approached, um, at kind of, uh, really from many years ago onwards. And EA sports has been kind of really a leader in that area, which has been great. And then I really want to shout out indie developments because there's been so much work in indie that informs everything from AA to AAA and onwards. Um, and indie has some advantages and disadvantages. Obviously, budget, team size is a disadvantage. But one of the advantages is when you have a smaller team, it's easier to work cross-discipline. It's easier to... Um, make sure that you're all working together to achieve a similar thing. And sometimes it's even a solo development, which is mind blowing. So a few shout outs there is um, Eagle Island and Celeste are both really famous for having assists, which is one approach to accessibility. Um, Hyperdot, which was a solo development. Um, full disclosure, I worked with them, uh, published by Glitch. They, uh, Charles, the developer on Hyperdot, did amazing work to just make flexible design as a core part of his principles. So when it came to looking at accessibility, there wasn't actually a huge amount of work that had to be done. Um, and then on a smaller scale, we see games over the last few years, Swords of Ditto, Falcon Age, Slay the Spire. They've all had individual features or like a couple of features that really 
have been moving and pushing accessibility forward for the whole industry. And so I think it's such a fantastic field that is being achieved at every, every level. It's, it's, it's great. People are working so hard. <laughs> Where do you see the industry going? Like, wh what do you imagine uh, in terms of accessibility in games in, in five years, for example? Like, wh what do you picture when you picture uh, the kind of the progression mm. of, of where we're all going? So I, I've been asked this question a lot over the years. Um, <laughs> and it's it's a great... It's, it's like such an interview interviewer yeah, question. <laughs> I love it. It's a great question, though, because <laughs> the reason it's a great question for me is I've seen it start to happen. Like the things I said three years ago are already happening. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like... <laughs> Well, and I'm sure working in development, like if you're, you know, if you're coming in with a team quite early on in the development process, that game maybe will come out in five years. So you can already imagine, I'm sure, some mm. of the things that we'll see. I don't really like to talk about what I want to see with particular games. What I really want to see is I want to see more of accessibility being accepted as a key discipline in the industry. So we're starting to see that with roles like mine opening up. It was one of the first roles in the industry to have a dedicated accessibility project manager on teams. Um, and I want to see more of that. I want it to see it be a respected discipline. I want it to see be seen as an arm of user experience um, and user research and Also, that to understand that it's everyone's responsibility to some degree, because unless we have accessibility champions across every discipline, um, we're not going to be able to achieve what we're setting out to achieve. Um, and even if you don't become an expert in accessibility and that doesn't become your speciality or your focus, there's so many things you can do just by understanding some of the barriers that we can throw up in our various way. And I think it's definitely important to understand that it's a multidisciplinary approach and everyone everyone should work together <laughs> that's my goal <laughs> for everyone it's like a change in philosophy or, or a shift in philosophy and and this kind of collaborative spirit maybe i think i want to just reiterate that it's okay if accessibility feels overwhelming for a developer because it does like all aspect of game development is overwhelming um and so reach out find your experts in your company find your champions we will make more champions i promise it's a growing field um and start your journey yourself there's so many resources out there um and join the accessibility community because it's a really welcoming community no matter who you are even if you don't want to make it your sole focus or speciality we'll welcome you and help you and guide you for any for anyone you know listening who's who's interested in joining that community or learning more do you have any shout outs or resources for people either as as designer as or, or just yeah as so the um igda a uh, special interest group uh, for games accessibility has a website and a discord and a twitter and it's an open community that also welcomes players because i think unlike a lot of disciplines accessibility really moves forward when we get feedback from direct feedback from players and players are so generous with that feedback and their time um and that's how we learn and that's how we get it right there's a really famous phrase that comes from the disability rights movement and it's called or it says nothing about us without us and the reason we have that saying is because um disability and accessibility has really been approached from a paternalistic perspective in society to the point where mistakes are made when we're told how we should refer to ourselves, we're told how we should access buildings, where we don't ha often have a voice. Um, and so the IGDA SIG really works to break that down. Um, but it's also just a really welcoming and lovely community where developers can share insights and information. We talk about articles that are coming out. Um, we have meetups. And then they also, um, we have the Games Accessibility Conference, which happens once, two times a year in both North America and Europe so far. Um, and I believe it's happening virtually this year. And uh, yeah, come meet people. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Cherry, thank you so much for taking the time. This is a really, really interesting conversation. And I can't wait to, to, to see more and hear more about what's going on in, the, in this field of game design. Thank you for having me a part of Game Makers, because I think it's, it's such a great opportunity to show accessibility is the same as any discipline in games development. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Makers, a Ubisoft podcast. This episode was edited by Manu Bachet. If you're interested in learning more about accessibility in video games, we put a number of great resources suggested by Cherry in the show notes. For more from Game Makers, subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.